Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into the Mining Stock Daily long-form episode. Trevor Hall here, your host, as always, to get you into what's going to be a long weekend as we celebrate President's Day here in the United States on Monday. So we will be back Tuesday morning with the morning briefing and more corporate updates here on the podcast. We have three segments for you today. First, our good buddy Dave Kranzler of Investment Research Dynamics and Mining Stock Journal joins us for some general takes on what's happening in precious metals, the junior mining equities, and also just seems like the general stock market wants to go higher, but the fundamentals want to push it lower. It's just kind of a no man's land right now. So we're going to get Dave's general thesis on what's happening in the big markets as well. We're then going to turn over to Chad Peters of Ridgeline Minerals to get an idea of kind of help investors focus on Nevada gold exploration, expectations versus reality, and really what does a strategic exploration project look like in Nevada. They had some interesting results out from Swift and their JV partner, Nevada Gold Mine. So we used those results to really kind of open up the book on Nevada exploration. And then finally, we turn to Garrett Ainsworth of District Metals. Now, this is a snippet of an interview we actually aired on the Going Nuclear podcast with Justin Hewn and myself talking about uranium exploration and really kind of fundamentals of what geologists look for when they're exploring for uranium. And Garrett has had an incredible success rate up in the Athabasca Basin. So he takes that and now is focusing uh, it looks like to be focusing on uranium exploration in Sweden. So, so a couple of high-level uh, geological and exploration type of uh, you know strategies from well-known geologists in the sector. Special thank you to Fireweed Metals, Arizona Snore and Copper, and also Western Copper and Gold for your continued support of the podcast. So long episode. Let's get to my conversation with Dave Kranzler. Have yourself a great weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you Tuesday. Uh, We're going to kick off this long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily uh, with our co-producer of the morning briefing, Dave Kranzler, author, editor of Mining Stock Journal and Investment Research Dynamics. Dave, hello, my good friend. <laughs> How's it going, Trevor? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great that you're here. Appreciate you jumping in here because uh, there's a number of things. I think it's appropriate that you and I kick off this episode. Let's talk about this general markets here. It's um, You and I were kind of going back and forth here of what investors and the big boards are telling us in on the back of what the Federal Reserve is telling us, listen, I don't know how you can really decipher that the Federal Reserve remains or is going to turn hawkish. From what I have seen in the last few weeks, not only from Jerome Powell, but also some of the news headlines from other uh, people on the board coming out and doing their public appearances, is they're talking higher interest rates for the next couple months. And that's definitely not hawkish. I mean, I think everyone, well, first of all, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people, portfolio managers and day traders that are 
trading this market or try, you know, quote unquote investing, if you can call that, call it what they're doing, investing, that weren't around for the dot-com bust and weren't even around in the great financial crisis. So they don't know what a real bear market looks like. And the only the only thing they know how to do is to chase stocks, chase stock momentum, as long as the Fed's printing money and either taking rates to zero or holding rates at zero. So it's like, I mean, for, I want to say, it seems like since September, probably, maybe even August, because that's when the precious metals started their last sort of bull leg higher was the end of September. But there was there was like a whole narrative out there that said, oh, the Fed's the Fed's going to stop raising rates soon. Remember that? It's like everyone is February, February this month. They were supposed to be done. Yeah. And (laughs) and actually back then there were there were I think maybe even Goldman might have been saying December. But um and it's like the the whole you know a large portion of market participants and and faux mainstream media reporters um you know it's like they're they're just begging for a pivot because that's that's the only way they know how to operate it's the only life they know in the markets and that's not what we have right now and i mean the first thing i do when they when they issue is you know they the meeting's over and they they publish the policy statement on the Fed website and I, I read every word of it and it doesn't take long. It's like five pair, five short paragraphs. And the whole time since they've been <clears throat> hiking interest rates, the statement itself really hasn't changed much. And right. there's nothing in there that would give you reason to believe that they are going to stop hiking rates and certainly not reverse course and take rates down. Um, nothing in there. And every single policy statement has been voted on unanimously. And, you know, for as long as, as far back as I can remember, <clears throat> usually there's one or two dissenters on the policy statement. So, um, and then... Over the last couple of weeks, you've had a couple Fed heads, or more than a couple, come out and say, "You know, we're we're not we're not done. We got to take rates higher." I mean, I think even Neil Cash and Carry, you know, the, the Minneapolis Fed president who's got a FOMC <clears throat> board seat or committee seat. Um, I mean, I think I saw something from him. I don't know within the last probably six weeks. Where he said he he thinks you know high fives would be appropriate for the Fed funds rate, and then I think her first name's Lauren Lauren Mester, Cleveland Fed head came out today, <clears throat> and I think she said we may need to take rates to six percent after that CPI report. Right? She was she was arguing for a, a fifty basis point rate hike last meeting. That I didn't pick up on, but. Um, I mean, we're seeing why. I mean, I don't know why people thought that CPA, CPI report was <clears throat> anything but um, justifying the Fed's taking rates much higher. Yeah. So well, the, the CPI report came in a little bit hotter, but of course the markets tried to sell off, but then you get a bunch of day traders 
uh, buying uh, that day expired call options out of the money. Right, and it creates the gamma squeeze. Yeah, it creates that squeeze. And then uh, Thursday morning, we get the PPI numbers that actually came in much hotter than what the CPI numbers can ever so it. And, well, they did the first half of the day, they ignored it, but then the markets rolled over in the afternoon. In fact, uh, it was down almost a percentage and a half all around the board. The NASDAQ was down almost two. Uh, you know, so we are recording this Thursday afternoon after that market closed. So we have no idea what will happen Friday morning, almost anything. But I do, it, I, I guess the, the conversation I want to have with you, Dave, is really, it's like the ghost of Bernanke past, like these generational option traders who have no nothing but zero interest rate policies. There seems to be this expectation that the Fed will pivot. They're going to make money easy. Things are coming down. You know, interest rates will come down. S&P, NASDAQ to the moon. And that is being, and that's, that, that's the tug of war with really, fundamentally the fed fighting inflation trying to bring this thing down to two percent and it almost seems like they're very serious but they're almost going to have to surprise everybody and do something real drastic to make it happen that's just my sense what do you think fed's in a tough spot i mean you know i would find it really hard to believe that these people on the federal reserve board who are highly educated and not not only that, but the, the, the research department at the Fed is as good as any economic research department in the world. I mean, they hire really smart people and they pay them really well. And <clears throat> according to John Titus, who's studied the Fed as closely as anyone I know, he said that a lot of, of the policy directives actually come down, come from the research department, that these guys on the board are just kind of a lot of times just parroting what, what the research department tells them they need to do. But I would find it hard to believe that these guys can look at the economic data that we're seeing and not see that the economy is in a, in a recession that's getting worse. And so, you know, in, in an, if things were not the way they are right now with inflation and all the money that was printed, you know, if, if, and if we didn't have, you know, the debt problems that we have, this would be the point. If we were on a gold standard, for instance, in a normalized monetary policy, this would be the point at which the Fed should be um, lowering interest rates, right? I mean, using monetary policy <clears throat> to try and re-stimulate the economy. But the problem that they have is that if they do that, the dollars the dollar is going to, like, fall off a cliff. And that that presents several problems. Well, first of all, they're going to have to keep hiking rates to try and attract investors to come in and help finance what's going to end up being a massive amount of treasury bond issuance in the second half of this year. Because the deficit's going to expand and um, they're going to have to sell a lot of new treasuries. And right now, our, our traditional financiers of our spending deficit Chinese, the Japanese, and the the Saudis, they're they're actually reducing their treasury holdings. They're not buying them, and so I think I think at, at a certain point, if if they take rates up high enough, and they can somehow prevent the 
you know, get the, the back end of the yield curve a little bit higher, you know, it might attract some capital that might that right now doesn't want to touch treasuries. And then the other problem is, is if the dollar falls off a cliff, I mean, if you're a foreign investor, when you sell your treasuries, you, you, you know, you actually get less money back, right? In your own currency. So um, if, if the dollar falls precipitously, that also hurts the ability of, of the treasury to attract foreign buyers of new treasury issuance. It's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that our creditors, China, Japan, the like, I mean, it almost sounds like they want, they're trying to turn them, turn away from the U S dollar. And, but it's a slow moving ship. I think it was slow. I think it's starting to um, accelerate a little bit, <clears throat> but you're right. I mean, there's, there's no question that there is a, a, um, a, a movement, especially amongst the Eastern hemisphere block countries and, and the, the, um, OPEC countries, um, there's, there's definitely a desire to de-emphasize use of the dollar and, and shift to when they, when they trade, they use each other's currency or there's, you know, obviously it's no secret that, you know, they're working on some type of, um, dollar replacement as the reserve currency and who knows what that'll ultimately look look like but um and part of it is what we saw with what the u.s did after russia went into ukraine <laughs> ostensibly to try and get the u.s out of there and remove the missiles pointed at russia in ukraine that the u.s put there under the guise of nato but um you know what they did with russia's uh, reserves that were being held outside of, of, you know, being held in Western central banks, freezing those things, um, essentially stealing them. I mean, I think that is where we started to see the movement away from the dollar really accelerate. And, you know, I think the rest of the world has been kind of, well, the non-Western world, the non-U.S. lapdog allies are, have been, you know, extremely put off by that maneuver. And it's, we're going to, there's going to be consequences now. So, but it, it can't happen all at once because, I mean, I, I haven't seen the numbers in, in the last couple of years, but um, I think the percentage of global trade transactions that are settled in the dollar is somewhere between 60 and 65%. Now, it used to be like 90% and it's already, it's come down to, to you know, the 60s and I'm, you know, it may even be lower now, but, you know, that you can't just get rid of the dollar all at once because then all your dollar as the dollar tanks and all your dollar denominated assets go to hell in a handbasket. Right. And that's why China can't pull the rug out with their, with their 1.1 trillion in treasuries. You know, they can't say, look, we just want to dump them all at once and get, get the hell out of the dollar because it, they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. Right. Right. Again, slow-moving ship and this monetary transition as we continue to just watch play out day by day anymore. Uh, Dave, let's get your sense of where gold's going from here. Uh, we had a nice run, uh, you know, November, December, January, February. There's quite this pullback. I 
laugh that there's not an ounce of gold traded that you don't know exactly where it's going <laughs> as you watch it like a hawk. <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, listen, you were at you were looking for <laughs> some sort of pullback here in the gold price. Uh, we're obviously getting getting it. I mean, how much is it? Are you paying attention? Is it more a fundamental pullback based on what's happening with interest rates and the dollar? Or is it a healthy technical pullback that, you know, just that it ran, had a nice run for three months and uh, needs to cool off a bit? I, I mean, that's a great question. And, um, you know, we, we won't we won't know for sure until we can look back three months from now and see what happened with where prices went, right? I mean, my inclination is to believe that, and I think, and there's a lot of signs that I look for that I'm seeing. My inclination right now is that, well, first of all, you know, and I, especially I get subscribers who email me and they're like, you know, because most of them, like you and I, are overweighted in in the junior microcap explorers. And those haven't moved, and we can discuss that in a minute if you want. But, um, I mean, if you look at – and actually, you mentioned November, and gold started moving in November after testing a triple bottom. But if you look at um, – silver started moving at the beginning of September. And it went from, you know, I think low 17s or something up to, what, 24? Um, and it essentially had a 38% move between, um, the beginning of September and mid December. And then it kind of went sideways before it started pulling back and, and GDX from the end of September until the end of the year was up 42%. I mean, what more can you want as an investor? If you're invested in, you know, just GDX or SLV or, um, you own silver or you've got a nice basket of mining stocks that include others, you know, larger cap stocks besides (laughs) the $10 million market cap stocks that I like. But, um, so, you know, you've had a big, you've had a big move in the sector over a three or four month period and it's healthy for the market to pull back. And so I'm inclined to think that what we're seeing right now is, is, um, really more of just a technical pullback that will set up the next move. And I want to compare this to, and you know, some of the, some of the frothy indicators that were around, that were around back in these two periods aren't here now, but if you look at like the move that we had from in early from in the first half of 2016, it went from basically January to mid August. So you had a, a eight eight and a half month move, and it ran up. Everything ran up quickly. The juniors, some of them were, were five baggers, the micro caps, and the market had just gotten too frothy too fast. And then we had, you know, a pretty big, you know, we had a um, really a correction that went until maybe March twenty twenty. I feel like there was probably a rally in there somewhere, but not much. And then we had that move starting in March 2020, and that lasted six months. And it was a parabolic move, and it was, you know, another Roman candle. We've had a and, – and that also started um, correcting in in uh, August 2020. And, and the market was basically in a downtrend until September of 2022. 
So I'm I'm happy to see this pullback if that's all it is to set up the next move, because it means that the froth that was around that drove those previous two moves is not present, and it's healthy for the market. And <clears throat> probably the most obvious indicator is the junior microcaps. They've gone sideways since September. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the good news is they haven't. They haven't. You know, they've, they've gone sideways. They haven't. They haven't gone down percentage wise as much as the large caps and the mid caps. Um, but it also means that there wasn't hot money piling into them the way the hot money was in in 2016 and 2020. So um, I, I'm encouraged right now until proven otherwise that. Um, we're, you know, this is just a, a healthy pullback slash correction from the move that we had between, you know, in the fall through the end of the year of 2022. And then just one more quick point. I mean, in the, in the bull cycles, so, and I'll just, just say, you know, we had a, a bull cycle, say from early 2001 until mid 2011. And then you you had, you know, mini bull cycles where you had big moves followed by corrections and a couple, we had a couple of those. So in those, in in that period between 2001 and 2011, you'd have a, a mini bull cycle that took the market higher. And then you'd get a correction. There was a couple times where you'd have you get a correction down to at least the 50-day moving average generically between gold, silver, and just say use GDX as a proxy. Um, and occasionally you get a two, you know a 200-day moving average correction. And I mean, when you would get a 200-day moving average correction, the ensuing move because we're still in a bull cycle during that period, the ensuing move would be big and it would last you know a while. So, and if you look like silver is. It just went below its its hundred day moving average, and right now it's 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 kind of holding above it. But the the two hundred day moving average isn't isn't too far below. There's a chance it might go. You know, we could see more weakness, and it goes down to the two hundred day moving average. Um, GDX actually almost tagged the two hundred day moving average today, and then it and then it bounced. So um, you know, if if we still could have some more downside, but if we do. Watch the 200-day moving average because because that's where if you raised cash over the last few months, which fortunately I I, I did not enough, but um, hmm. that's where I'm going to start putting more cat you know cash back to work is when hmm. and we could go below the 200-day moving average temporary you know it's it's horseshoes and hand grenades but um, if this is indeed just a, a a healthy corrective pullback before the next move higher. Um, I would say at the worst case, we're going to hold at the 200 day moving average. Right. Uh, last question. We'll try to keep it, keep it short here. Uh, what's, what's your sense of the health of the junior mining equities? There's a lot of companies out there. Uh, they are trading sideways, but they're unable to raise capital right now. Uh, we did a segment a couple days ago, whether about the financing window, it's either you're raising a bunch of money right now, or you're not getting a whole lot of anything. Are you at all concerned about the health of some of these junior equities as we move into the spring? When exploration is really supposed to start really kicking in? I mean, in terms of the companies that I follow, 
you know, either, either I have them as part of my mining stock journal universe and my portfolio universe, my investment portfolio universe, or I keep an eye on them because there's, there's stocks that I might consider down the road. Um, I, I'm not seeing those companies, if they have to raise capital, having too much of an issue. Um, you know, we went through a period where a lot of these juniors, micro caps, were, it got to the point where they were able to raise capital without putting warrants on the, on, on the deal. Um, and I think some of the deals that I've seen come, and they, you're right, they've been sporadic. Um, have required warrants or half warrants, but, um, you know, again, most of the companies that I follow, um, have enough cash to get through at least this year and and finance their plans, their, their exploration plans. So, um, you're right. If, if, if this turns out to, you know, be another leg down in the whole sector, companies that need to raise cash, you know, in the next six months are going to have problems. So, but I, I don't, I really don't think we're in that type of environment. That was really, you know, what happened, um, after 2011, there was a period there where no one could raise money. Well, at least juniors. And, um, there, you know, there, it, it, it put some companies out of business. So yeah. and that's just, that's, one of the risks of investing in the juniors, right? It's full There's of all risks. kinds of risks and risk of, <laughs> of find of, you know, availability to funds or liquidity is, is a risk. Yeah. You got to have a thick stomach to play in this playground. That's for damn sure. Uh, and I credit you for uh, <laughs> thickening up my stomach uh, throughout the years here <laughs> and, and warning me about, uh, you know, what we were getting ourselves into, but I appreciate your time here, Dave, and thanks so much for your insight. Uh, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, actually, couple of weeks, couple of months, maybe. I really think these fundamentals and higher interest rates are really going to continue to put a damper on some of these juniors being able to raise cash. We're already seeing it playing out, but maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel as the year progresses in the second half. But uh, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody. Uh, we're going to take a real quick break, and then we'll be back with Chad Peters from Ridgeline Minerals. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Mining Stock Daily. Uh, this will be another segment here of our Friday long-form episode. Happy to welcome in Chad Peters of Ridgeline Minerals. They trade on the Venture Exchange with RDG and on the OTCQB with RDGMF. Uh, Chad, I, uh, you and I have chatted numerous times, obviously, lots of corporate updates. Uh, this might be the first time you have been on this week's long or excuse me, in this series long form episode. So uh, you, you're hitting the big time here, buddy. Oh, wow. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, I wanted to touch base with you because, uh, listen, we've got, I kind of want to take a big picture look at the news from this week out of your SWIFT project. 
where Nevada gold mines has been drilling with your um, with your earn-in option uh, agreement that you did with them back in September of last year. Actually, excuse me, September of 2021. So it was yep. a while ago. Um, the, the Swift is obviously in that Cortez mining district there in Nevada. Uh, they have spent close to $5 million in exploration there since that uh, agreement was executed. And uh, so they, they've reached their threshold of what they need to, the work they need to spend on for actually the remainder of this year. So they're getting through this pretty quickly. Yep. Uh, let's talk about the, these results at SWIFT first. And then I want to kind of jump into a big picture of what this means not only for a, a a small micro cap junior explorer with a JV with a big producer, but really what expectations are like there as a, a gold explorer in Nevada. First results: thirty two, excuse me, thirty seven point two meters, grading point two nine grams per ton gold and two point six grams per ton silver. Um, in, uh, in in one hole, a second hole was 48.8 meters, grading 0.45 grams per ton gold and 0.98 grams per ton silver. That came in hole three. Chad, look, I mean, you look at these things, obviously there's gold mineralization there. Now, is, these aren't eye-popping results as far as grade. Intervals are pretty solid. But what is the important context to take from these results? Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Um, that's something really important to hit on with this re- release, right? Like, obviously, I would have loved to have been sitting here talking about 20 meters of 10 grams right now. That was, you know, that's everybody's dream with with these deep Carlin type targets. But um, the approach that Barrick has taken, sorry, NGM, has taken with uh, Swift is the same framework drilling approach that they took with multiple tier one discoveries that they've made in the district, right? So Gold Rush, Four Mile, now the Dorothy discovery, which is on trend of Four Mile, these all require, um, especially with these deep targets, you require wide spaced, deep drill holes that are focused on hitting the main key. You know, they're trying to answer key questions early in a program, right? Is there the host rocks? Is there a structure to feed these systems, the fluid flow? And is there gold? We answered all three, well, NGM answered all three of those with this drill program. Um, yes, the gold intercepts are not high grade, but what they are showing is consistent thick intervals of gold mineralization in the right rocks adjacent to the right structures. And now what they need to do is they need to start going in, infilling uh, within these holes, which frankly are spaced anywhere from 800 meters to a kilometer apart. So these are wide spaced holes. So there's infill drilling required. They need to drill deeper and they need to drill a long strike. And uh, based on the the kind of call it the roadmap that they've used in other discoveries, um, you know, this is the early days of what will hopefully turn into a, a large Carlin type gold discovery in, in the district. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's important to throw that context on there because these things are, are you know, uh, slow and time consuming process to make these kind of discoveries. So I'm glad we have partners like NGM to, to fund it 100 percent and throw all of their kind of institutional knowledge of the area um, into this program. Uh, you know the Swift project obviously very well. You know the historical work that's been done on that project uh, for years and decades, maybe. But are these the deepest holes ever drilled at Swift? Yeah. Now, as as far uh, as far as we know, uh, we have a pretty good handle now comparing the data that set the Barrick had and what we originally had is uh, hole uh, hole number what is it two would have been the deepest hole ever drilled um, on the project. Um, and like I said, I, I think we only talked about the highlight intercepts. You know, there was probably three to five intercepts um, in each of the drill holes that were anywhere from 20 to 40 meters thick. 
Um, and we had high, you know, the highest grades we hit was 2.7 grams per ton gold and 64 grams per ton silver. So, you know, we're, we're getting there, right? We're getting more than just anomalous. We're starting to see actual real uh, gold intercepts. So, Is it a relief off your back to know that you don't have to spend the money to do the work, but you get to report the news? Yeah, it's, it's literally the best possible scenario for a junior. I mean, in this market, it's been an absolute nightmare raising money. I actually did the math today. And if, if, if Ridgeline had funded that $4.9 million in expiration at Swift, um, we, at the current 25% or 20, 25 cents that we're trading at, uh, we would have had to issue about 25.5 million shares of the company. So the kind of these are the kind of targets, you know, like the size of the prize is huge, but the cost is also um quite high as well. And if, if we'd have funded this ourselves, we could have become another typical Nevada junior story with a, a two, three, 400 million share count and a broken, a broken story. Right. And, and that's what we wanted to avoid. So that's why we partnered with NGM in the first place. Uh, I get the privilege of connecting and interviewing Joanna Panica next week uh, over, she's a geolo- geologist and portfolio manager over at Equivest. Um, and, 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 and kind of doing some homework in preparation for this interview coming up, uh, I was kind of following some of her presentations and she had this really great, uh, note that she gave back last fall where she said, uh, you a, a, a deposits model is very similar to baking bread. We all know how to, everybody knows how to bake bread, right? Like, I mean, there's, yep. you can't really deviate from the recipe and process of baking bread and deposit models should be the same. And it may, it, what you just described about, you know, this, these early deep drillings and showing all the indicators, checking the early indication boxes uh, that uh, Nevada gold mines has done. It kind of fits this model. I mean, they're not doing anything any differently than they've done in a number of their other projects that they're exploring. No, absolutely. I mean, literally, the, the, the geologist that was that was led the discovery team for the Four Mile Discovery, um, he's now the project manager and, and overseeing all exploration at Swift, right? So they're taking everything they've learned in that recipe, if you want to call it that, and they're throwing it at Swift. They're throwing it at, at multiple projects that they're working on in, in Nevada, right? We're just one of many. You know, it was actually pretty exciting. They put out their, their quarterly results yesterday. And, you know, SWIFT was listed as a, as part of, as one of the tier one exploration targets in Nevada for, for Nevada gold mines. So if that doesn't show that they're excited about what they're, they're looking at, you know, if I can stand on a soapbox all day, but they're putting it in their quarterly reports and saying this is significant and matters. So, um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, I think that recipe is, is especially in Carlin type system seems to hold together really well. I mean, uh, like just, uh, just for some context, like the four mile discovery, I keep referencing that, but you know, they drilled 12 drill holes, deep holes. Like we're talking 4,000 footers at four mile. Um, and the first like 11 holes barely had anything in them, right? Five feet of a couple grams here, little cracks of mineralization, but very little, you know, there's enough smoke to have them keep going, but there was no significant, you know, big high grade intercepts. But hole number 12 changed that, right? They hit something big on twelve. hole number 12. I can't remember the exact intercept, uh, but it was, you know, they hit something that said, okay, this is starting to look significant. So these things take time. Um, we're on hole number four at Swift, right? So, you know, my hope is, is as we get, you know, somewhere closer to that 10, 12 hole range, I, I believe that we're going to start seeing some significant intercepts, but uh, time will tell. I, I want to re- revert back to the news release and you put some core photos there from hole three of the mineralization. Uh, it, 
just give me a sense. And, you know, I love these conversations with you, Chad, because you just have provided me with such a wealth of knowledge and, you know, my understanding of what you want Nevada rock to look like if it's going to host <laughs> well, uh, gold well, no and one, silver. No one's fact checked us yet, right? So right. <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, let, uh, listen, there, there's this this great core photo of, of hole three, obviously pretty deep in the hole where you hit that lower plate. I mean, just super, super dark rock, uh, you know, with some kind of white shading in there. I mean, this is ideally kind of what you want to see almost anywhere along those major trends there in Nevada, huh? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Like if, I mean, if, if this was an oxide system at surface, it'd be bright orange and, you know, be perfect for a heap leach scenario. Like, I mean, that, you know, 48 meters of 0.45, that's potentially, if that was at surface, that would be an open pitable intercept, right? And I think that's important for context is we're seeing thick, um, you know, that black decalcified rock with the, the quartz and the calcite veining that's cutting across it. I mean, what that's showing is a really dynamic um, fluid system, right? You're getting fluids coming in, they're taking away um, calcium and, and all kinds of other metals. They're stripping that out of the rock. They're replacing it with, with you know, silica, gang minerals, gold, all the trace elements that, that host these systems. So you're seeing, yeah, I mean, what we see there um, was really encouraging. And when we first looked at the core, I mean, you look at it, and that's the tough thing about parlance systems. You really don't know whether it's going to run two and a half grams per ton like we saw or whether it's going to run 25 grams per ton. It's quite hard to tell, you know, like there's, there's, there's indicators, there's subtle signs. And, you know, you can usually say, you know, yeah, I, I do think, but, you know, really it's tough. Like when we first saw it, we're like, geez, this could be, we could be on to, you know, 20 grams per ton, or it could be, could be nothing. And, and we're somewhere in the middle right now. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, but uh, I really like what we saw so far. And uh, the really important thing I think that gets, you know, I can't speak for the NGM team, but what gets our team excited um, and we're all on the same page, I think, is that uh, the continu- continuity of the system, right? We got a hole 800 meters away and hole two and hole three, they're 800 meters apart. And they're both hitting multiple intercepts of 40, 50 meters, continuous gold in the right host rocks along major uh, low angle thrust structures. So, I mean, we're seeing all those, parts to the recipe are really there. And um, now they need to infill drill. And, and you know, now we, instead of drilling 800 meter step boats, we need to start drilling fences. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, you, oh, you've obviously had this conversation with Nevada gold mines uh, following these results. You know, what, what, what are they planning next year? Do they go back this spring and start work again? Uh, you know, what, what is, give us a sense of what they're going to do. Well, we left uh, hole number four, we got weathered out. So these holes take a long time, right? Like they can be a month and a half just to drill a single drill hole. Um, mm-hmm. So we got weathered out in January. Hole four just got into the lower plate. I think we drilled about 40, 50 meters of lower plate and then had to shut the hole down. So that hole's cased and ready for re-entry. My hope is that's one of the first things they come back and do. It's kind of real easy to get right into lower plate, plate rock quick. So um, as far as timing budgets, they're still kind of finalizing all those things on their end. So I can't really speak to that, but uh, they have been very clear that they will be back and drilling the project in 2023. So my hope is sooner than later. Okay. I want to go back and you mentioned this and I picked up on it earlier this week as well, but they did mention the SWIFT project is uh, kind of a, uh, within their tier one district exploration play there in Nevada. Uh, but there's another other, other projects along that trend that they also highlight. You're no, obviously no stranger to Nevada. In fact, you maybe have one of the best years to the ground that uh, I've ever known and kind of get to pick your brain a little bit from time to time about what else is happening outside of Ridgeline. Uh, but really looking at this, uh, at this map of all these exploration plays that they have in that district, 
how do you see this all fitting together? Right? What is the long-term play here that, you know, if you were to speculate what Barrick is going after? I think, I think uh, there was a major shift in thinking when Mark Bristow took over the company and Rangold merged back in, I think it was, what, 2017? Um, and what they've been doing ever since, you know, it took about a year for the, for the NGM group to get their feet under them. And then ever since what they've been doing is accumulating and consolidating ground adjacent to their core mines, right? I think anybody, it's no secret that, you know, the best place to find gold is, is, you know, around or underneath an existing mine site, right? And so they're kind of taking that to heart. So you're seeing them do deals with groups like us at, uh, Swift. Um, you're seeing deals being done at the Maggie Creek project with, uh, uh, the Origin Royalties just did a deal over there, I think, uh, last fall. So they're coming in and, and they're realizing that, you know, okay, all this ground that, you know, was slowly dropped by Newmont and Barrick over about a 15, 20 year period, you know, deemed non-core or too far away from the existing mine sites. They're not coming back in and they're consolidating that ground. They're seeing the potential and they're putting millions and millions of dollars every year into trying to make new discoveries. Um, I mean, there's one of the important things that you need to always remember about, especially about Carlin type systems is they require especially these deep guys, they're, they're refractory, right? So they require roasting and uh, autoclaving to be milled uh, efficiently. Those things are expensive. Um, you know, NGM already has the infrastructure in place and they don't want to build new, new facilities, you know, for projects that are 150 miles, 250 miles away from the trend, right? They want to be, they want to be trucking ore from satellite operations to fill that mill feed that is going to be actually, if you notice, um, although Barrick is replacing a lot of ounces, they're also seeing their production rates fall, right? So Nevada is mm -hmm. a place that um, all the messaging I'm seeing is that they're they're kind of doubling down on Nevada. They want to make new discoveries and they want to keep those mills full. Um, so yeah, I think that you're going to see significant new discoveries, both from 100% owned Barrick projects, where they're just doing some really good exploration work along strike of their existing mines. And I think you're going to see hopefully new discoveries from groups like us, um, groups, you know, Maggie Creek, um, other projects that Barrick is now optioning and doing joint ventures with. Uh, looking at the graphic that they placed on that slide, you know, you can call me naive, but between that South Getchell extension and also to, uh, to one side and then Swift on the other side, uh, Chad, it almost looks like this mineralization is just kind of getting narrower at depth and, and, and funneling down. I mean, is that, I mean, just from layman's point, do you think uh, going going deeper over time might provide some sort of a kind of bonanza type deposit down there? Yeah, I think you're seeing that already, right? Like, so uh, all the, you know, historically, most of the systems that have been mined in their deposits in Nevada have all been shallow, wide, you know, huge tonnage, you know, two, three, four gram per ton open pits, right? So that was what mm -hmm. kind of made, made Barrick and Newmont what they are. Um, now you're seeing these new discoveries at depth, uh, Good example on the Cortez trend is four mile. They're seeing, you know, you're talking about 10, 20 meter intercepts instead of 100, 200 meter intercepts with the open pits, but your grades are 20, 30, 50 grams per ton. So um, I think once, um, probably once four miles in production, it'll be one of the highest grade gold mines in the world. Um, hmm. You know, in, on, a, on a head grade, actual, you know, head grade, diluted head grade basis, I think it will be one of the most, it'll be one of the highest grade mines anywhere in the world. Um, North Leeville is a new discovery being made at depth at, uh, on the Cortez, uh, or sorry, the Carlin trend, which is only two and a half kilometers on strike of our Carlinese project. And that, that same thing, you're seeing considerably higher grades than anything being mined at Leeville anything being mined at gold strike, um, but it's deeper, right? You're talking 3,000, 4,000 foot drill holes. So I think your your general assessment is correct. As you get deeper, 
um, the systems are changing and evolving and they're getting tighter and higher grade, which is great. But at the same time, it's also makes for difficult expiration, right? Like, so we've hit right. these widespread hits at Swift. They're going to need to hit that needle in a haystack um, with some tight space, tighter space drilling um, to really go and find that big discovery. And when they do, I hope it'll be, you know, hope it'll be another four mile. Well, their price for uh, ex- their, their price for discovery is creeping higher and higher. It seems as they go, as obviously their reserves are depleting, and just the exploration costs to go deeper are going to be more expensive. How do you, you know, how does a major gold producer kind of start balancing that? Are we seeing that through the merger and acquisition trends we continue to see, just adding, you know, buying more ounces to buy more time? in the meantime, as they explore for more? I think so. Yeah. Like I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of this m and I mean, I'm not an expert in this side of the business for sure, but you know, all this m and I think you're right. I think it's a bandaid, right? People are trying to fill what the next 10 years of their production timeline looks like, but what does the next 20 years look like? The next 25, some of these groups, if they want to keep growing, they need to be making organic discoveries of their own projects. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's something that, uh, you know, Barrick and Mark Bristow are doing really well is they're, they're, they're doubling down on, on making those like discoveries. I mean, they own some of the best ground on the, arguably on the planet, right? Or expiration ground anywhere around. So why not just explore your own projects and spending instead of spending billions of dollars to acquire someone else. So um, I don't know if they're getting rewarded for that. Well, they're certainly not getting rewarded for that now, but um, I think over the next 10 to 15 years, they might, you know, make some significant new discoveries and, and be at the kind of the front of, of, uh, of that moving forward. So be exciting. Yeah. Uh, last kind of theme and question for you, Chad, I just kind of want to get a sense of what the, uh, the mood is for gold exploration in Nevada right now. Uh, what are you hearing on the ground uh, as far as like the junior exploration companies uh, is work continuing? Or are they kind of, a lot of these companies kind of stuck with uh, unable to raise meaningful sized capital uh, finances. What, what, what are you hearing? What do you understand? CRDs, man. Everybody's drilling CRDs. <laughs> That's the new, yeah, including you, <laughs> including us. No, uh, you know what? It's still actually, it's incredibly hard to raise money right now. I mean, there's money out there. There's certainly folks kind of sitting on the sidelines with some cash, but um, terms aren't good. Now you're still looking at, you know, discounted financings with heavy warrants. And uh, yeah, I think, I think from the junior side, a lot of us are kind of sitting and waiting and we're trying to do low cost, um, low cost work that doesn't break the bank um, that still moves our projects forward and kind of waiting for those windows, those financing windows where hopefully we can raise it a bit better terms, but um, everyone's pretty excited. I mean, there's lots of great new projects that are being explored in Nevada. It's just a matter of raising the money to, to do it efficiently. All right, Chad, good to connect with you and welcome to uh, welcome to the big show. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> All right. Uh, That's Chad Peters from Ridgeline Minerals. Just a great conversation. Always a wealth of information. In fact, uh, I might say, if you ever have a question about Nevada gold exploration, Chad's your guy, but also pick his brain about RDG as well as they continue to trade on the Venture Exchange. All right. uh, We're going to take a break and we'll be back with Garrett Ainsworth talking about uranium exploration. Stay tuned. The following segment is a snippet of an interview I conducted with Garrett Ainsworth from District Metals. The entire interview can be found on the Going Nuclear podcast through Clear Commodity Network, which airs both on Spotify and 
iTunes podcast. So I would encourage you to please go to that podcast and click that subscribe button and maybe even leave a review if you could. Here's that short discussion with Garrett. Well, Mr. Garrett Ainsworth, welcome to the uh, second episode of Going Nuclear with uh, myself and uh, Justin Hewn. He's going to be sitting this one out. Obviously, he's on vacation now, but uh, I get the privilege of having a general conversation with you. How are you doing? Uh, doing great, Trevor. Yeah, and, and uh, really happy to talk to you about uranium today. <laughs> well, you know, you and I have had multiple conversations on uh, Mining Stock Daily, obviously, as you are the CEO of District Metals and doing a lot of exploration there in Sweden. I, I've been on uh, a couple of your projects, specifically that flagship Tontebo project, uh, but you as a company are it appears you're going through a little bit of a transition into the uranium space, but I think a lot of people who know you will not be surprised that that's really going to be the focus of this conversation. Maybe people who don't know a lot about your background and what uh, you have been doing in the uranium exploration space uh, might be pleasantly surprised to know that this is really where you've cut your teeth. That's you. You actually took it out of uh, out of my mouth. That 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 is. I so I cut my teeth <laughs> in the Athabasca Basin, uh, starting in, in two thousand and seven, um, uh, working for a company that's uh, called was called Alpha Minerals. It was uh, at that time it was called ESO Uranium. But um, so essentially, I, you know, I took a lead role in in the discovery of the Triple R deposit. Um, I was a VP exploration for Alpha Minerals. I, I found the, you know, went into the historical assessment reports, found some really encouraging looking data, put it all in a compilation. Um, we flew an airborne radiometric survey. It lit up, went out, found high-grade boulders. It was one of the biggest, you know, high-grade uranium boulder field in the Athabasca Basin in the southwest corner of it. Uh, you know, boulders up to 40%. It was the most exciting time, uh, you know, I've ever had. And it was, you know, just coming in into the basin. Um and then you followed up with trenching and to, to find out where the bedrock source was, you know, followed up um, with drilling, which we, we made the discovery in late 2012. And it was uh, a, a JV between Alpha Minerals and, and Fission Uranium. Uh, you know, it turned out to be such a good asset that Fission Uranium bought out Alpha Minerals 50% ownership in late 2013 for $189 million. Um, and uh, that was a it was a really good really good win. Uh, then I went on to Next Gen Energy as VP Exploration and and Development, um, and uh, had a lot of success with the Aero Discovery and uh, a few other discoveries along the Patterson Lake corridor uh, that uh, you know was the host for the Triple R deposit. And uh, yeah, so I mean we we had a lot of, lot of success, a lot of fun along there. And, you know, the aero deposits, in my opinion, one of the best undeveloped conventional uranium deposits on the planet. It's in the basement rock. Um, and it's, you know, relatively shallow starting at a depth of, you know, hundred, 200 meters goes down to about a thousand meters. It is a behemoth and, uh, you know, next gen's doing the right things to, to develop it here. So it's, it's, yeah, I think that could be the next one. To, to get into production in in the Athabasca Basin. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't mention also won some really good industry awards at my time at Alpha Minerals and, and also at my time uh, at NextGen as well. So, and then I left NextGen in 2018 
Um, and that's when I started District Metals. Let me ask you, I want to ask you a philosophical question. You might giggle a little bit, but, you know, do you go out and find uranium or does uranium go find you, Garrett? And what I mean by that is how did you, did, you know, when you were when you were studying, when geology as a student and then professionally, is uranium something that you wanted to pursue or was it one of those things where you landed a job within uranium exploration? You just had to take your academic background and get started there. You know, it was something you wanted, I guess, in the first place. That's a good, it's a good question. It's a bit of both, to be honest, because I mean, the timing when I started in 2007, obviously that was, that was almost at the top of the last uranium cycle. And then it was all downhill from there. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, but the, the thing that I learned is that if you're onto a good uranium asset, it doesn't matter where you are in the cycle, you'll still see excellent shareholder value, you know, value creation. Um, but one thing that, you know, at the time when I started with ESO Uranium, which is Alpha Minerals, um, you know, one, a big draw is that uh, the value of the rock uh, of, of high grade uranium in the basin, it's, it's pretty much higher than, than almost every other type of mineral deposit, unless, um, you know, there's some, some freak of natures that are quite, quite uh, high grade, but uh the value of the rock and, and also, you know, the way you explore for it. There's there's definitely some good vectors to explore for uranium mineralization in the Athabasca Basin. I mean, first off, it's radioactive. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a you can walk around and find radioactive boulders, which is something that you cannot do uh, for, for gold or other um, other other commodities. Uh, I'm hoping you can give me a little bit of high level uh, technical geological lesson here. Uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned the radioactivity, obviously of uranium, but I, I guess I'm, I am myself. I'm naive to understand how uranium deposits form. You know, I've got a pretty good understanding of precious metal deposits, you know, base metal deposits, different type of, different type of, of geological, uh, or bodies in those settings. But I tell you what, I am so clueless when it comes to uranium and how these deposits formed uh, you know, through the Earth's crust. I mean, and, and I know this is maybe getting a little bit into the weeds, but I think it's worth discussing because maybe people would find this interesting. Just how exactly does uranium find itself into the Earth's crust? What does it take and why is it typically so... Uh, concentrated in very small areas uh, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, uranium is highly mobile element. Hmm. So that means it, get, it can get leached out of rocks very easily and transported. And then when it hurt, it hits uh, certain trap, like structural traps and, and then the chemistry changes, it will precipitate into a mineral which is quite often uraninite, pitch blend, um, and, and whatnot, and as a primary uranium mineralization. So it, it, that is why you get such high grades, because it is so mobile. And I mean, there's all different types of uranium deposits, so I'm not going to go into every single one. But I mean, in the Athabasca Basin, um, there's still an ongoing debate, as with many geological topics, as to where the uranium actually came from. Uh, and, the, you know, Orano, who's previously 
Arriva and Cameco have debated this for for quite some time uh, historically. Mm. You know, where did the uranium come from? Did it come from the Athabasca sandstone or did it come from the basement rocks? And there's strong arguments from scientific data for both. Um, but, uh, you know, I like to actually take a, a bit of an approach. Well, why can't it be both being the source rocks? Um, the idea is that the Athabasca Basin was very thick. Like, um, you know, at the time of mineralization, it would have been like five kilometers thick. And even low levels of uranium in that Athabasca sandstone, like one or two BPM, you take, you take the size of, of the sandstone and the mobilization of uranium and hot fluids circulating through the Athabasca sandstone, very permeable. And then, um, you know, the uranium, where, where these ura uranium pregnant solutions, where they hit uh, quite often graphitic fault zones within the basement that have upwelling um, solutions, uh, they could have uranium in them. Maybe they don't, maybe, maybe they do, but they provide um, the chemistry required to precipitate out the uranium into primary uranium mineralization, typically being uraninite, um, or it, or in in a base. So that would be your unconformity deposit, where it's right at the contact between the Athabasca Basin and the basement rock. Or um, sometimes the the thought was that the fluids, the pregnant uranium fluids from the Athabasca Basin would get sucked down into these basement faults. And then that's where they would interact um, within a trap and where there's voids. Um, they would interact with other fluids that were within the basement rock and then again, drop out uranium. Mm. And that, that's the idea of what's happened at, uh, at the aero deposit. So is it fair to say all, all these, 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 jurisdictions of these uranium deposits let's say Athabasca Basin but obviously there's also uranium mineralization you know in the in the mountain west to high plains in the United States uh Texas has uranium you know even across the sea you know obviously uh Kazakhstan's obviously well endowed in uranium deposits Sweden as we know we'll talk about that later um I mean globally are you are there similarities with potential thesis of how this uranium was deposited in these different areas of the world or is it all kind of you have to you know pinpoint which jurisdiction you're you're you're, you're looking at and then maybe create a thesis just based on 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 geological events of that area yeah they're not they're not similar across the board and like so let me give you an example in the in the u.s as you point out you know Colorado, Wyoming, uh, Texas, you've got all these sandstone hosted deposits mm -hmm. and they're, you know, quite often roll front. So again, very permeable sandstone with um, uranium that's, you know, anomalous, but not, uh, you know, it's not high grade uranium originally. And, and it's because the sandstone was previously um, an eroded uh, granitic uh, intrusion. So that, that's why there's uranium in it, because quite often in intrusions, um, especially a two mica intrusion, you'll get elevated uranium. So and then af after the sandstone has been uh, placed and you get fluids that are running through it, again, they, the fluids will pick up the uranium um, and dissolve it into a pregnant solution and move it down gradient. And that's where roll front um, mm. type deposits are 
are created uh, right at the the nose of the of the roll front where the redox fluids are interacting with the oxidizing fluids and it drops out the uranium. So that's more similar to the to the theory that's happened in the Athabasca Basin. But then if you look at like a black shale uranium vanadium deposit, such as what we've just applied for in Sweden, that is there's nothing like that going on at all. So that's hmm. a black shale is is a type of rock that's been deposited um you know quite quite uh decent depths in in an ocean and so it's very very fine grained but the black shale has a lot of organic material in it so it acts as a sponge and it soaks up the uranium from the from the ocean water um same with the vanadium as well and other metals like zinc copper moly and nickel so so that's a you know totally different kind of mineralizing event that that has occurred in a black shale than than uh, type deposit than compared to you know a sandstone roll front or the Athabasca Basin. Okay. And my other, uh, hopefully this is my final naive question, but it's really on the basis of radioactivity. Where does it come from? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, good, yeah, good question. Um, and yeah, I mean, for some people, it's really scary, like when Fukushima happened, but. Right. It's not something to be afraid of because we're constantly getting exposed to radioactivity. So there's three natural elements that are radioactive, uranium, thorium, and potassium. So if you're eating a banana, you are, you are ingesting you know, a radioactive uh, uh, isotope of the potassium that's in that banana. Obviously, it's not at dangerous levels. But um, yeah, and, and when you're up in an airplane and you're closer to the sun, you're, you're actually getting quite a bit of exposure to, to radioactivity. Or when Fukushima happened and there was there was uh, people going out to beaches with scintillometers and it was showing, you know, in California, it was showing the elevated radioactivity when they went out on the beaches. That wasn't from Fukushima. That was because the sands there had thorium in it from naturally eroded um, intrusive. They probably had thorium and uranium. And so they, they, they went out like they were going to the ocean and, and then, you know, the radioactivity went up and they're like, look, this is from from the nuclear accident and that's it was total um you know totally incorrect and, and just meant for hype yeah very that's very sorry okay so I, this I, i'm glad i get to ask you these questions because these are just you know simple questions i really don't have the answer to and because justin's not here uh i get to ask them well I, I will maybe i'll also add about uranium so um uranium itself isn't isn't overly radioactive but it's got an isotope in it that is radioactive. And when that decays, it breaks down into other isotopes of radioactive material, such as polonium. Uh, there's different thorium type isotopes, strontium. The, the list goes on. Like you could just name a ton of them. And a lot of those um, daughter products is what they're called after the decay of the uranium isotope that's radioactive. Now those are, those can be very radioactive and so the longer the deposit has been sitting there, technically, the more radioactive it should be because there'll be more daughter products. I, I want to ask you the art of exploration for uranium deposits. Uh, obviously, I mean, you did a great job really describing the Athabasca Basin, and that's just been an incredible uh, value add and hotbed of activity there in uranium exploration and development. But I want to ask you about the difference between green fields and brownfield exploration in uranium. 
Is there such a thing? Are there people out there looking for greenfield type uranium deposits? Or is the sector really stricken to what's already kind of been sought out, explored for, and found elements of uranium in such of a brownfields deposit? I, I would say right now there's a lot more greenfields exploration going on, really? given where we are in the cycle. And it's, it's actually gotten to um, an almost comical level, whereby uh, the Athabasca Basin is getting, you know, more ground is getting, has been staked up recently um, that is completely, um, you know, not, not uh, prospective, but mm. people are just doing it as a land grab to say, hey, we've got, you know, the most, or, you know, we've got uh, X amount of hectares in the basin, therefore, you know, you should invest in us. And it's really not about uh, quantity. It's about quality. These deposits are not big um, in, the, in the Athabasca Basin. Uh, they're, they're relatively small and extremely high grade. They're not like a porphyry where you, you, know, you need to stake up massive, um, you know, tracts of land. So, um, yeah, th- there's a lot of ground that's been staked up in the Athabasca Basin that's not good. And, uh, and that's you know, a lot of focus, a lot of money will be spent on, on this, uh, on these grounds and unfortunately wasted in, in my opinion, because that's what happened in the last uranium cycle. Way too many uranium companies popped up and they were going out working areas that, um, you know, were not really worth, uh, worth the funds or the effort. And, you know, I would argue that that exact same thing is happening in the lithium space right now, as we speak. <laughs> The same cycle, different metal. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, but for argument's sake, you know, what about highly prospective greenfields exploration? Not you know, you know the sh- the shadow of other success, but is there more prospective greenfields exploration in the uranium sector? And I'm you know obviously outside of the Athabasca Basin, but other people. I mean, is there such a thing as greenfields exploration? Not just land grabs. Yeah, like like starting out in an area where there's no previously known uranium. Right. Um, well, be, because radioactivity, you know, helps pinpoint people into uh, into uranium, it, it really is a vector. So, mm. I mean, even, even there's a lot of areas where, um, you know, it, uranium wouldn't previously have been known unless uh, it was picked up from a, a radiometric survey that was done regionally and, and then it, it, you know, kind of garnered attention. So yeah, like pure, pure um, greenfields work in, in totally undiscovered uh, districts. I don't think I'm not really aware of, of that. Okay. Um, there's, there's like in the U S there's small uranium mines all over the place, uh, like historical and, and brownfield sites. And, and that's a good place to, to start looking in, in the U S um, because yeah. it can lead to something bigger and better. Cause quite often in these brownfield sites, uh, the past operators, you know, they didn't follow the exploration steps that they should have. They didn't start off with uh, the basics and, and then work their way up to drilling. Sometimes in some cases they just go right into mining of, uh, of, you know, a radio radioactive body that had some uranium mineralization in it. So. But my final question is, and, and I, and I hope you can kind of direct your answer towards people 
listening to this conversation who are maybe new to uh, investing in uranium exploration equities and development equities, what do you need to see out of a uranium project, out of its management, um, you know, all those things listed before you find any red flags? What do you, what do investors need to see to feel confident that their capital is going to be value add? For not only for themselves, but for the company doing the work. What is it about uranium exploration that investors really need to be watching out for? Yeah, I mean, and uh, the things you need to watch out for, I guess, are, are very similar for, for other commodities as well. They're not just, you know, only only uh, slated for, for uranium. But, I mean, if you've got high grades, um, you can get away with low low tonnage and as long as the, the pounds are there. Um, and, uh, if you've got low grades, then, you know, you need big, big tonnages and you probably want to be close to surface or at surface, more of an open pit type, type scenario. Um, going back to the high grade, low, uh, lower tonnage, um, you know, you, those could be deeper underground type operations, such as what you see in the Athabasca basin. They could have a lot of technical mining, um, issues like where you have to freeze the rock, you can get away with that because the value of the rock is worth so much. Um, and then also, you know, you want to make sure that there's infrastructure nearby um, so that that doesn't have to get built out to the point where it doesn't become economic to mine the, the uranium deposit in, in question. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's mandatory, but it's always good to kind of have a view on, um, uh, like how is the the ore going to get processed? Because you know, especially in the Athabasca Basin, there's a lot of distance between between the deposits and and the process uh, the mineral processing facilities and uh, those processing facilities for uranium, especially for the high grade, they're not cheap to to build out. Does it feel uh, refreshing to be a uranium baron once again after a few years off, Garrett? I'm absolutely jacked <laughs> to be turning back uh, a focus to uranium. Uh, and, and to be honest, the, one of the reasons why I, I, I left the Athabasca Basin as my main focus um, is because I didn't want to just spend my entire career in the Athabasca Basin. Um, you know, I want to learn new things. I, I wanted to explore different areas and so now the opportunity to explore for uranium, a commodity I know all too well, in Sweden, which is a jurisdiction that I've that I've you know come to know very well over the last uh, what three years or so, is uh, is a really you know good combination for for myself and for District Metals. I, I, before we let you go, Garrett, I, I do think it's it's worthy to note that uh, you know you and I have been colleagues and friends for a couple of years. I am a shareholder of District Metals, and but by no means is this conversation supposed to be uh, taken as investment advice. And I hope that we had a conversation really about the ethos of your career, but also the art of exploring for these uranium deposits, because there's so much in this space that I just do not know. And I think a lot of other people listening to this uh, can take a lot out, get a lot out of, you know, but when it comes to be, be generally, what is there something I missed and the big picture 
of uranium exploration and where this sector is heading in the next decade. You know, what is it about uranium? Are we starting to get another? Is are things are the is the capital starting to percolate once again in the last year that certainly hadn't since you mentioned two thousand seven. So the the last uranium cycle, I guess, was maybe two thousand and four to two thousand and eight. Um, it uh, obviously was crushed by the Great Recession, but that uranium cycle and and the uh, the lift of the price of uranium to $140 a pound was really based on hopes and dreams that, that China was going to build out their nuclear reactor fleet along with India. Mm. And fast forward, you know, like 15, 15 years, and lo and behold, China has actually built out a lot of their, their nuclear reactors. Uh, I mean, in total, there's 440 reactors in the world, and there's about 52 reactors currently being built with the majority of those in, in China. Um, India has not gone as fast as China, but they, you know, they, they will need to. So, you know, this uranium cycle is really um, got a much better footing than, than the last one. Um, and, and then obviously, um, it's uh, it's even stronger with uh, with everyone understanding that uh, you know we, we need energy security in in all the democratic countries that is not reliant upon a dictatorship. It's uh, so that you know all of a sudden means we need to do things more domestically. Garrett, thanks for your time. I think this might be the longest conversation you and I have ever had. <laughs> Record, recorded. We've had longer conversations over meals and uh, drinks, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for sharing some of your time and your insights. And best of luck uh, with your uh, endeavors there in Sweden. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.